environmental, conversations, on creative arts, scholarship, and teaching. This This is is Ecocast. Ecocast. Hello and welcome to Ecocast, the official podcast of the Association for the Study of Literature and the Environment. I'm Lindsay Jolivet. And I am Brandon Golm. Welcome to another episode, and thank you for joining us. Today's guests are Jeffrey Santa Ana and Rina Garcia Chua, and they are two editors of the upcoming manuscript Empire and Environment, Ecological Ruin in the Trans-Pacific. Jeff is an associate professor of English and affiliated faculty in Asian and Asian American Studies and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Stony Brook University. He received a BA in English and Environmental Studies from the University of Pennsylvania and a PhD in English from the University of California at Berkeley. He has research and teaching interests in Asian American and Asian Pacific Diaspora Studies, Environmental Humanities and Eco-Criticism, Human Migration and Diaspora, Postcolonial Criticism, and Critical Ethnic Studies. He is the author of Racial Feelings, Asian America in a Capitalist Culture of Emotion, and his monograph in Progress is Trans-Pacific Ecological Imagination, Envisioning the Decolonial Anthropocene. This book examines cultural expressions, such as literature, graphic narrative, and film, in which migrant and diasporic people from Asia and the Pacific Islands make sense of their experiences with environmental devastation and ecological crisis through histories and memories of imperialism and colonialism. Rena is an upcoming Jack and Doris Shadbolt Fellow in the Humanities at Simon Fraser University, and she completed her PhD in Interdisciplinary Studies from the University of British Columbia, Okanagan. Currently situated in the unceded Silks Territory of the Okanagan Nation, Rena is originally from Manila, Philippines, and is the editor of the first anthology of Philippine eco-poetry, Sustaining the Archipelago, which was published in the University of Santo Tomas Publishing House in 2018. Her research interests include eco-poetics, ecological literacy, migrant eco-criticism, Asian-Canadian literatures, diaspora studies, and post-colonialism. She is also poetry editor of Tiger Moth Review in Singapore and The Goose, a journal of arts, environment, and culture in Canada. Welcome, both of you. We're so happy to have you. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for being here. Before we get started with the official conversation, I'm going to introduce a short little folklore for us to think about today. So imagine you're walking through the forest of the Philippines, or maybe you're walking through the city, but there's still some large trees left in the developed landscape. You smell something in the air. Smells like tobacco, maybe from a pipe or a cigar. You look around, you don't see anything right away, but then you look up at the tree next to you and see a large figure shadowed in the dark. The light of a cigar, you know, something like fire flashes for a moment, and maybe you see something that looks a little scary, but you don't feel a sense of danger necessarily. You go along your way, maybe tell your friends or family about it, and they say, oh, you probably saw a capre. Now, many of our listeners may not be familiar with the capre. Um, I personally have never seen one, <laughs> um, but the capre are a sometimes called a forest spirit or are associated with trees, and it looks 
something like an ogre, perhaps you could say, and they, the telltale sign of one being around is they smoke a cigar or a pipe or something and you can smell the scent of the tobacco. Some say they are guardians of the trees or protectors of the forest. And um, they have even been included in sort of the narrative around preserving certain trees in the Philippines. Also, I think maybe our guests today will be able to speak to the fact that there is some relationship to the colonial tobacco industry as well to this creature. Um, and if any of you want to know more, there is a uh, comic and Netflix series called Trece, which I know has some capre in it. So that's our folklore for today. Now, Rena and Jeff, let's get into talking about <laughs> your work. Yeah, I was just going to say... Um... I, I thought you were going to go with the monster flesh eating baby in the middle of the field. I always <laughs> use that to scare my North American friends. <laughs> I always, when you're in the forest of British Columbia, I always tell them, always watch out for the baby that's crying in the field. Don't pick it up because that baby will eat you alive. So that's the Tiana, <laughs> which is, which comes from the idea that you know, the Philippines is a, is a Catholic country. So it comes from the idea that aborted babies become Tiana and they're left in the field and they're there to haunt you and to eat your flesh. So that's another folklore for you. And I think they featured in Trece as well. I'm not really sure, but that's one more folklore for you. Thank you so much for sharing, Rita. <laughs> yes, I try to get ones that are ecologically themed, but I personally like scary stories. So <laughs> I'm always happy to hear more. <laughs> Can I add to that? Um, mm-hmm. And that's actually a question, uh, you know, for Rena. Uh, I was born here in the United States um, with a father who was born and raised uh, in the Philippines. My father um, was born and raised in, in Manila. Um, but when I was a child, um, I was uh, very much afraid of spiders. I grew up in, uh, in like a new development in upstate New York, outside of Binghamton, New York. Um, and so there were a lot of fields and woods and um, really, you know, natural landscapes that I played as a child, but I was very much afraid of spiders. Um, (laughs) And uh, I must have been about uh, six years old and I was playing in a field and I backed into this very large spider web. And one of these, um, if you ever seen them, they're actually beautiful spiders. They're, they're gardener spiders. Mm, They're big mm -hmm. black spiders. They look like they have like uh, yellow lightning bolts on their backs. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, it was big. I, mean, I was a small kid and it started crawling up my arm and I started screaming my head off and I was crying and my dad ran out of the house thinking, you know, that something horrible had happened. And he came up to me and, and he, and he told me about um, in the Philippines that spiders are actually um, good luck. And that when he was a child, he used to, uh, you know, he was a boy. So he would get together with other boys and they would catch spiders and they would have them, uh, the spiders fight each other. Um, and I always understood that as some uh, folklore, uh, uh, Filipino folklore. Um, but he also told me about, uh, and Rina, please fill me in on this, the Aswan. Is that what you're also talking about, the Aswan? So, Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so the Aswang is a monster, any kind of monster, like a general umbrella term for a monster, Aswang. And you're right. Um, I have a vague memory of watching some kids on the street in my subdivision playing with spiders and, and making them battle. 
So um, I, I never participated in it, but yeah, so I do remember that. So your dad is not pulling your leg. <laughs> That's thank you both so much for sharing those stories. And it, I think it helps lead us into the start of talking about your, the monograph you've edited, because I would love if you could talk to us about some of the like originating motivations and inspirations behind putting together this specific manuscript and maybe talking about the area specificity of Southeast Asia and the Pacific, et cetera. I'm happy to start. And, and it's, um, it was really a, a great idea uh, for, for you, Lindsay, to begin with the Philippines and folklore because the, uh, the beginnings of our manuscript empire and environment uh, are in the Philippines. Um, in 2016, uh, Rena, I met Rena for the first time in Dumaguete City. Um, in, 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 I guess it's like the, the central region of the Philippines, kind of, yeah, or, you know, yeah. central south region of the Philippines, um, and one of the large islands, uh, Negros, Negros Oriental. Um, and we were both there for a conference, uh, Philippine, a Philippine studies conference. Um, I, I didn't present a paper at the conference. I attended panels uh, while I was there. But I was in the Philippines at that time doing research uh, for an article that I was writing about um, typhoons, super typhoons, and um, uh, where I was interviewing um, writers and artists who contributed to a collection of prose, poetry, um, journalism, to raise money for those people, thousands and thousands of people who were affected by super typhoon Yolanda, known internationally as Haiyan. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was there for the whole summer on a, on a grant uh, to do research, but also to teach um, at Silliman University in Dumaguete City. And while there, the conference happened, and that's where I met Rina. Um, and we just struck up a friendship and we've known each other and we've been good friends ever since. But really our project began in the Philippines where at the end of the conference, uh, I talked with Rena about um, going to the conference for the Association for the Study of Literature and Environment, the ASLI conference that would happen the next year in 2017. Um, I had never been to an ASLI conference. I had just recently heard about it. And, and, uh, and we took it from there where the two of us decided to put together a panel on the topic of uh, decolonial and post-colonial theory and uh, environmentalism and eco-criticism that was specifically focused on Southeast Asia. Um, so I'll let Rena uh, continue with that, right? She can, she can explain to you how we then put out a call for papers. Uh, we, we invited people, we invited panelists. Um, but Rena, um, what am I missing out? If you could, if you want to go ahead and step in. Yeah, so what I distinctly remember was how that panel, if you remember, it was in Detroit, Michigan. Um, that was mm -hmm. my first um, official ASLI um, conference too. I've attended um, ASLI ASEAN, which is the um, Southeast Asian branch of ASLI that just started in 2016. And so that was the founding conference for that was in Singapore um, before I left for Canada for my PhD. And I remember, Jeff, that was an early panel, like an 
like really awfully early panel. It was 8 a.m. So we had very low expectations, right? We were thinking, oh, probably no one's going to show up. And we were also um, within the slot, the time slot of, let's say, the superstars in eco-criticism, <laughs> um, which includes at that time my supervisor. And I remember, oh, everyone's going to go to his panel. Um, uh, so my supervisor is Greg Garrard, who's thinking, oh, gosh, everyone's going to mm-hmm. go to that panel. They're probably <laughs> going to be in the same room with like a bunch of superstars. But we had a full room. It was an 8 a.m. Um, panel. We had a full room. The, the audience are very engaged. So I think it inspired us together with um, our two co-editors who at that time we were not, we, we kind of just connected with them during that conference for the first time. And now they're really good friends of ours. So Zhu Xiaojing and Heidi Amin Hong. And I think the four of us kind of thought at the same time, there's something here that we can pursue like anything else, right? Um, a lot of co-edited collections come from the camaraderie and the interest in the conference in particular, but we were really excited because we realized, oh, this is something that's missing right now in the conversation in our field, in the environmental humanities, in eco-criticism, and perhaps we can pursue this. So I think that's when we had a call for papers, Jeff, but um, we actually contacted people that we know who are working in the same scholarship or familiar with their work. And we were very lucky to come up with, um, I think, a good initial group that we work with. Um, a lot of them gave us their papers, their conference papers, and then they extended it. And I think that started this um, six-year process, which has been, I think, the bulk of my PhD studies. And that's kind of how it went, right, Jeff? And then we sort of just um, invited people to um, contribute, like Craig Santos Perez, um, who was happy and to to provide us the poems for mm. each um, section. And then um, we were very lucky to get... Um, Macarena Gomez Baris in um, for the our forward and then um, Priscilla Walls for our um, afterward and so on and so forth. So it kind of works, but you know, just like any edited collection, right, Jeff? Some people, um, you know, we're really excited about their work and um, we have their work, and then you know, sometimes life happens, and it's it's been a long time, and because it's like a six, almost five years process to get this going. Yeah. Nice. Yes, uh, everything about that. Oh, everything about that is absolutely um, is absolutely uh, you know right on. And what I w- one of the things I wanted to say was that um, behind the panel at that time in 2017, this is something that Rita and I both talked about. Um, was that uh, in 2016 and 2017? Uh, there, of course, were a number of important scholars in the field of what you can call post-colonial ecologies, of course, Elizabeth Delugri and George B. Handley and their, um, and their classic uh, edited volume, co-edited volume, uh, post-colonial ecologies. There was also Graham Hogan and Helen Tiffin, uh, post-colonial eco-criticism. Both of those uh, books I teach regularly in, uh, in my graduate as well as undergraduate courses on the topic of of post-colonial and decolonial um, ecologies. Um, but there wasn't, we were kind of surprised. And I think one of the reasons why Rina had mentioned that uh, 
our panel was at 8 a.m. and a lot of people came to it. At that time in 2017, there weren't a lot of panels. There weren't a lot of talks at the ASLI conference on this particular topic. Um, since then, of course, we've been... Yeah, it's, um, <laughs> it's been wonderful to see much more focus you know, on this work, on bringing mm-hmm. together decolonial theory, post-colonialism, and the environmental humanities. Um, uh, but at that time, this is one of the things that Rena and I both understood, that there's a need for this. There's a need for this kind of scholarship, um, but one that would also specifically focus on the trans-Pacific region, right? The um, indigenous Pacific Islands, as well as um, uh, Asia, you know, throughout Asia. Um, so there, there hadn't been anything published yet, like a, a full manuscript, either uh, either a monograph or, or a book volume that specifically looked at, uh, you know, the Asia Pacific region. So that's, that's really kind of like, um, you know, the basis, the beginnings, right, of, of our book volume. Yeah, I'm very excited that uh, this will be added to the conversation. I had post-colonial eco-criticism was one of the subfields in my qualifying exams. <laughs> but sadly, that was before this was <laughs> available, so it wasn't <laughs> included. But hopefully it will be now. Nice. Um, yeah, I was just going to – there was like a couple of things I was going to just quickly comment on. Um, one is um, uh, – that one of the things that the Asley conferences, the the two now that I've been to, one was Detroit and the other one was in uh, at Davis, um, ha- are are hands down the the best academic conferences I have ever attended. And it, one of the reasons is what you just pointed out is that um, just the support, like even when you feel like you're getting like the worst possible um, time slot and that no one's going to show up or anything like that. Um, you still get, even, even if you don't get like a huge crowd, I'm, I'm happy you got a huge crowd, but even when you don't get a huge crowd, the people that are there are very engaged and supportive. And, and that's um, so, you know, I would just encourage people, you know, as, as we're, you know, maybe getting back into in-person conferences um, in the future to definitely, um, <laughs> go to the, to the next Asley one. Cause they are, mm-hmm. um, they're really, really special. Um, but then the mm-hmm. other thing was just quickly, um, uh, for those of you who maybe haven't been listening for a while, but if you're interested, uh, also just to, to pitch for, uh, Craig Santos Perez's episode where we had him on sharing some of his poetry, it was a really, really excellent, um, episode. So to check that out. Um, but anyways, those were just two quick asides. <laughs> um, but, uh, I'm curious, could you just kind of, uh, maybe give us like a, a, a quick, just kind of syn- summary synopsis of, you know, what the work is happening in this book, what you're really, really, see- uh, seeking it to do, um, how you're, you're hoping it will, will kind of inspire people, um, into, uh, taking your work and, and incorporating into their own stuff like that. Yes. The, what we are doing in this book, um, is, is, is the focus on the trans-Pacific region, um, where the focus is on, uh, investigating as well as giving voice to those indigenous Pacific Islanders, uh, and I want to emphasize, right, uh, the indigenous Pacific Islander uh, voices like Craig Santos Perez, Emilani Case, um, Rebecca Hogue, who, whose work focuses on, on Hawaii, uh, <coughs> environmental humanities and, and Hawaii, um, that we are uh, giving voice t- to uh, people of Asian descent and Pacific Islander descent, 
to represent uh, in a way that contextualizes histories of colonialism and imperialism, right, in the Trans-Pacific region. Uh, the work, it, it in, the book includes 13 separate chapters that span uh, East Asia, Southeast Asia, uh, the Pacific Islands, Micronesia, um, uh, Hawaii, uh, and also um, uh, part, not only uh, parts of uh, Southeast Asia that also would include, um, you know, the, the, those Pacific Rim areas like, you know, Australia and New Zealand. So it's really expansive in its scope, um, where each of these uh, works uh, investigate and give voice to uh, either through literature, through film, through uh, you know, through poetry, um, give voice to histories of imperialism and colonialism and the impact that this has had on uh, on the environment, particularly what we call ecological ruin, uh, and then to use a term that Anne Laura Stoller coined, imperial debris. Um, mm. It also contains uh, a foreword by Macarena Gomez Barras, as well as an afterword by Priscilla Wald. So that in itself is like, the, you know, is the, is the context as well as the content of the book. Um, but Rina, um, would, do you want to add anything to that as well? Like, um, but particularly, you know, it began with focus on Southeast Asia, but then it really kind of, you know, exploded in, in, in scope. And also to understand um, how, you, how you might understand as well what we mean by trans-Pacific in this book. Yeah. Um, thanks, Jeff, for that um, summary of, of the volume. Um, I've been writing postdoc applications for like, some time now, so I do have a ready answer for everybody <laughs> in the academic life. Yeah, so um, I always look at the book as not any more simply opening conversations or um, centering trans-Pacific perspectives. Um, I think it continues these conversations that we're seeing um, beyond Detroit Adley Conference, beyond um, Davis, um, and it continues these perspectives, these conversations, um, so that we're um, confronting the interlocking systems of oppressions that are part of climate justice that should be um, discussed in climate justice, um, especially when you think about um, global Asian capital and North American empires in the Trans-Pacific. So my work um, has always been kind of a parallelism and an investigation of how um, the Philippines and Canada are are sort of connected in a neoliberal and um, capital way um, beyond you know just empires, but that legacy of um, ruination that are left by. Um, you know, Western countries or first world countries, if we want to use that term, um, are present and are um, persisting in the trans-Pacific in, in, different, in different forms and are expressed in multidisciplinary ways, which the, this particular um, collection offers. So I think that's kind of it. That's probably like my elevator pitch for it, according to my um, postdoc application. <laughs> Thank you both. That was so helpful. 
I think, can I add one more thing to that? Um, I want to emphasize because it's in, it's in our, the title of our book, Trans-Pacific, is that I think what's, uh, what, that, what we want to imply by emphasizing Trans-Pacific is to counteract erasure and to counteract amnesia and forgetting. Mm. One of the terms that is central to our book is imperialist nostalgia, but to counteract imperialist nostalgia, how each of these chapters and the works that they, um, that they discuss in each of these chapters is a way to counteract uh, the, you know, uh, Renato Risalto's um, term that he coined, right, imperialist nostalgia, the way in which colonialism has, um, you know, has ruined and destroyed the environment, but done so in a way that it forgets, right? Uh, histories of settler colonialism in particular that have been rendered forgotten. Um, and then the process of mourning what has been destroyed as if, uh, as if colonialism has has simply been erased, has simply been forgotten. So each of these works, each of these chapters and the works that they, that they discuss uh, bring to the forefront, right? Um, a way to counteract that imperialist nostalgia. And also something else that our book um, is very much a part of are the ongoing uh, discussions, debates about, about what the Trans-Pacific is supposed to imply. Um, both Rena and I uh, emphasize that that th that we want our book to uh, to very much, of course, include you know with the chapters and the poetry that that it does include um, indigenous Pacific Islanders and their experiences. One of the things that we mention in the book, and this is a quote from Craig Santos Perez is how uh, indigenous Pacific Islanders have been seen as canaries in the coal mine, right? They're represented in the popular imagination, especially in the global north, uh, to show how climate change is now having an impact, right, globally, but particularly in the global north. Um, I mean, just today, uh, you, you look at the news and it's all over, a heat apocalypse mm -hmm. in Europe, right? I mean, this is not to, of course... Um, downplay the tragedy that's happening right now with these uh, deadly heat waves that are affecting Europe. But people of the Trans-Pacific region, particularly indigenous Pacific Islanders, have been call sounding out the alarm, have been calling out the alarm for decades now, right? Um, and they, their voices have been heard insofar as they're, they're seen as being canaries in the coal mine. But as Santos Perez uh, emphasizes in his work, um, the global north has yet to really understand how Pacific Islanders feel about the precarity that they are facing through climate change. Um, so that's what our book you know, emphasizes, uh, you know, in taking in 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 this chapters that represent the voices, right, of Asian descent people and Pacific Islanders um, is that they're more than just a warning, but they're also a way for us to understand uh, in the context of, of history, right, the histories of colonialism and how we have gotten to where we are uh, with this heat apocalypse, right, with the catastrophe of climate change, that there's a whole history behind this. And the history is, you know, hundreds of years in the making with uh, with imperialism and colonialism.
<sighs> yeah, that's very valuable, wonderful work you're doing. <laughs> and so difficult to think about as well at the same time. There, I think there's such the, always the duality of the pain of this history existing along with the need to recognize it. Um, and I, I think it's a very important piece of sort of theoretical work that your volume is taking into consideration the the what is left behind by imperialism this the nostalgia as well as the debris that you discuss in the volume as well as your sort of reminder to all of us that different populations different places on the planet are impacted differently and have different responsibility in the entire conversation about the anthropocene um, and I think that foregrounding the Trans-Pacific as a region, as well as foregrounding Indigenous perspective, I think will go a long way in helping all of us consider those issues further. Yeah, and I think I think piggybacking off that a little bit too, um, could you maybe explain a little bit? So in your in your uh, in in the book, you kind of um, in some ways are, are picking up on this, this notion that uh, the, the term Anthropocene is kind of an ineffective term because it's, it, it is collective in terms of the, the anthro part of it, right? It's, it's the people's impact. Um, but then the way that that is, as Lindsay was pointing out, and as you've been pointing out, the imbalance in both the impacts and the responsibilities of that. So could you talk a little bit about the challenges to that word? Um, are there any, are there other terms that people are suggesting it, to kind of replace Anthropocene to speak to that uh, imbalance or indifference? Yeah, I'm going to start because I know Jeff, you have had done, you've done more research on the Anthropocene. I think um, I'll just start with like a very clear example. So a lot of my work is on uh, migrancy and my own personal experience as a, a migrant. I identify myself as a migrant. Um, and the idea, I think one of the first things that I reckoned with when I moved countries from the Philippines, the global south, to you know a very much more progressive country such as Canada is just how much, it's just the concept of waste. Um, in the Philippines, my consumption, um, I, I know now, is not as much as what I consume in Canada or, or the waste that I produce in Canada um, eclipses whatever waste I produce in the Philippines. And I think that is where um, I center the concept of the Anthropocene, just that simple example of how when we say the Anthropocene, it puts the blame on all human beings equally without thinking about how each one has their own environmental context and their own spaces to reckon with in terms of thinking about the environmental historical um, footprints in that space. So for example, um, there's the idea or there's the image that, say, the Philippines, um, and I would use my country constantly as an example. Um, for example, Manila, where I am from, is 
you know, dirty or um, very congested, you know, and we can go into the concept of populism here too, but maybe not. So um, we have that idea of Manila that way, and it is that way, but why? So there's that question of um, where does this condition, environmental condition, come from? Where's the history of this environmental condition? And I feel that the Anthropocene, as a as a general umbrella concept, just looks at the just look at yeah, just looks at the people and say, oh, you know, Philip, the Filipino people living in Manila do not know how to manage their waste, blah blah blah. But then we like my understanding is that. Um, that's a that's an unfair, I think, um, unfair realization of the intensity of the problem because um, then we have to look at why have the environmental condition progressed this way. And then you could look at the histories of colonization, blah blah blah. And then why is the blame put on a very small country, whereas? Countries like Canada consume more, even with less people in it. So just that idea that um, we're all responsible for the same things, right? When we're all responsible for our carbon footprint, blah, blah, blah. When, you know, billionaires are like taking 12-minute flights in Mm -hmm. California. (laughs) I think that's always the that's what we're confronting now with the Anthropocene because for a while it was such a popular term and and that's that's our field right that's eco criticism we have these terms that we get really excited about um, and then we research further into and then we realize um, as we listen and as we invite more um, people especially um, indigenous black and people of color into the conversation which we're doing now I, I was hoping we'd progress quicker, but we're doing it now. That's good. Um, then we realized just how much these terms can be dismantled and can be deconstructed because there's so much more there that we have not yet realized before. So kind of knock it off the pedestal. What about you, Jeff? What do you think? Yeah, I think you you said that beautifully, Rena. I agree with, with everything that Rena is saying. Um, and to get back to your question, Brandon, about is there another term that we can use? I don't think it's so much important that we replace the Anthropocene with other terms, you know, that we're all familiar with, like capitalocene, plantationocene. I think what's important um, is to contextualize historically the Anthropocene, mm-hmm. to do exactly as Rena and you, Lindsay, you know, had, had mentioned, uh, mm-hmm. which is when a term, the Anthropocene is used uh, to kind of generally refer to all humans, right, mm-hmm. um, as being equally responsible uh, for, you know, pollution of the environment through, particularly through fossil fuel emissions and the consumption and burning of fossil fuels, that, of course, is false, Right. That uh, it goes back to what I was saying earlier with Craig Santos Perez and one of the arguments that he makes about how uh, where he is from. Right. In, in, in Guam, but also uh, people of the Pacific Islands, that the amount of carbon that that they emit into the atmosphere is infinitesimal. Right. In comparison to those of us in the global north who 
are the largest consumers, right, of, you know, of our, of our way of life, in our way of life, but also um, our vast amount of consumption that leads to uh, the emission of carbon dioxide, of fossil fuel emissions, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Um, is it correct now to say that the United States is the number one uh, emitter of carbon dioxide? I think it was, uh, I know that they're, you know, that China and India are also uh, largely emitting uh, carbon dioxide. But as we mentioned in our book, um, the historical context for why China and India as quote unquote developing nations. Um, and, and Amitav Ghosh mentions this in his, in his book, um, in his recent book, that the reason why China and India are large emitters of carbon dioxide is, is because of de the period of decolonization. Right. But I think that the Anthropocene just needs to be historically contextualized. It needs to be, um, we need to understand the histories of colonialism and imperialism as of course, absolutely uh, central to the fossil fuel industry. And not, and also um, not to, uh, as the term Anthropocene might imply, right? In, it, in its tendency to, uh, you know, to erase uh, colonialism and imperialism, but also how colonialism and imperialism are ongoing. They are not over, as the term post-colonial might imply, mm -hmm. right? So I think, um, so th there's a way in which to continue to use the term Anthropocene, but to do it in a way that is uh, where we, we are responsible for contextualizing history, you know, in that term. Um, but I do like the terms like plantationocene, and if I can just quickly mention why I like that term. Uh, in, in, in my monograph that I'm currently writing, um, I'm trying to understand how we can think of, how we, we can't begin to understand what the Anthropocene means, right? Particularly uh, in a trans-Pacific context without understanding the history of of the transatlantic slave trade, right? There is an intimacy between, uh, of course, the transatlantic slave trade and colonialism and imperialism in the Asia Pacific region, right? The way in which uh, the earth has been terraformed, has been uh, transformed catastrophically through the use of slavery, right? Toni Morrison writes about this, right, in, in her works. Uh, but we need to make these connections, right? We understand that Anthropocene means um, uh, changes, right, in the Earth's biosphere that are caused by human activities. Mm -hmm. Well, those human activities are slavery, right? Uh, colonialism, imperialism, and what is slavery? But of course, colonialism and imperialism. So we bring these, we bring these together. We bring these together together to understand the linkages, right? not in ways that kind of uh, trap them within borders, but, uh, but to understand how this is all connected historically throughout, throughout the Atlantic region, but also the Pacific region and bring them together. Um, so, yes, thank you. Yeah, I think that was an excellent explanation of why the, why the specificity of historical lineages and historical reverberations and the specificity of location and place. I think both of you really spoke to why that's an important consideration and why it's important to make, you know, 
more knowledge, you know, whether it's in the form of conferences or manuscripts about sort of specific places like the Trans-Pacific or whatever you want to say. Um, to bring it back a little more specifically to the monograph itself, um, now that we have this really amazing context for why all these issues are discussed, um, I'd love if you could speak to just kind of bring us back to that about the use of poetry in the manuscript and the choice of poetry as a framing device. I think this also speaks to our, all of our interests as people who inv are involved with Asley, sort of the literature element. <laughs> and Rena, I know your chapter is about poetry and eco-poetry. So if you could speak to sort of the way that intersects with these conversations. And, you know, I know Jeff mentioned emotion and the importance of that as well, how people feel about this. I'd love to hear your opinions. Yeah, so a lot of my work is on um, eco-poetry and thinking really about what that term means. So a thing that I've noticed in our field, um, seeing that, you know, we've, I think all of us here have invested ourselves in this field for a long time, is that um, we have this fantastic term, just like Anthropocene, um, eco-poetry, but we never really nailed down the definition. And I think before... When I was starting out in the field, eco-poetry without a clear definition, and especially a definition that fits the kind of eco-poetry we're seeing now from around the world, um, aside from the definitions that are in um, the eco-poetry anthology by Anne Fisherworth and um, Laura Grace Reed, I think now I'm more comfortable to say that eco-poetry is still an evolving concept and it's still an evolving um, art form, basically. And so thinking about eco-poetry, I think, you know, the way we've, we've expressed our relationship with nature and the way that we are now thinking about how to share our narratives when it comes to climate collapse and the changing climate is really um, it. I feel that a lot of this started with poetry, and because it's it's a, I would say simple art form, right? Um, for me, probably I say that because this is my this is my special <laughs> specialization. But um, because it, it, I feel that it, the idea of containing and trying to um, encapsulate emotions and realities in narratives in a couple of lines is quite integral to the way we process the the breadth of in environmental collapse and the changing climate. Um, as we try to process these things and some of them not even volumes of book books would um, be able to really talk about what we want to talk about at this time. Like every day there's something new. Every day there's something happening. Every day we're experiencing um, the effects of this changing climate. Mm -hmm. I think poetry allows for that expression and allows for kind of like a safe space, I would say, where we can think about responses, expressions, and sharing narratives um, in, in any way, shape, or form. And I say any way, shape, or form now because um, eco-poetry has evolved so much. And um, 
I'm particularly interested in eco poetry um, from outside North America in particular now, because mm-hmm. I see the innovation there and I see new forms of expression there. And I think that's the reason why um, Jeff had also, because um, Jeff had chosen the pieces in the introduction, right, Jeff, if I'm remembering that correctly, you've chosen the pieces for the introduction and um some of the pieces he's chosen are from one of our favorite writers, Marjorie Evasco from the Philippines and um, Kathy Jitnil Kijiner. Um, and these pieces speak to just the kind of eco poetry that we're now, um, now seeing published outside of North America and seeing this kinds of expressions and the way that they encapsulate what we want to say about the environment is, I think exciting and um, probably a reason why um, it keeps on um, interesting me. And I think that's why we will continue to pursue eco poetry as a concept or as a form or anything else. Yeah. When I began teaching environmental humanities courses, but, but specifically what we call, uh, you know, climate change in literature. And this was in 2014 when I first started um, teaching these teaching these courses. Um, I, I, I referred to a lot of uh, work by scientists, particularly by uh, historian, science, science historians. Um, one of the books that I taught uh, many times is that really slim volume. I'm sure you've all read it, The Collapse of Western Civilization mm. by Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway. Um, a fascinating book, terrifying to read. But one of the things that they emphasize, and both of them are scientists, right? They're, they're his, uh, their, uh, their field is his, uh, history of science. But um, one of the things that they emphasize in the beginning of that book is that... Um, it's uh, it's the artists, right, who can bring the vastness of the catastrophe of global climate change within the realm of human understanding. And it's something that they mentioned specifically in the beginning of their book that I'll never forget and that I've always thought about. Um, and then, of course, uh, a, a couple, a year later, um, uh, Amitav Ghosh wrote The Great Derangement, where... He, he said, we have yet, we have very, uh, a very small number of novelists, of fiction writers who are able to write about climate change and the vastness of climate change and bring that within the realm of human understanding. Since he wrote that, he's gone on to write his, you know, his own works of literature to, to, to try and do that. And I think he has succeeded very much in doing that. Um, but this is what I think our book does by including the poetry is that it is taking the call that uh, writers like Ghosh, uh, Oreskes, and Conway mention that artists, uh, fiction writers, um, you know, filmmakers, right, not only have a responsibility, but it's imperative on them to represent, right, uh, the catastrophe, right, to bring to our awareness, to to make graspable within the realm of human understanding climate change. So that's what I think um, is, you know, in a grander, in a grander way to think about why the emphasis on poetry, right? But also the, the poems that we include um, in our book 
are poems that I teach, right? I teach Craig Santos Perez's works. I teach uh, Kathy Janil Kijner's um, works. I teach Marjorie Avasco's poetry to my students. They are so hungry for this work, right? Um, in, in a way that I think it not only uh, makes climate change graspable for them, but it also, I think, enlightens them. It, it allows them, it grounds them in the experience of what it is like to, uh, what, it, what it feels like, you know, to get back to something that Santos Perez mentions, what it feels like to face, um, you know, not only to understand the histories of colonialism and imperialism, but also to face climate change, right? What it's like to experience biodiversity loss, right? In your own homeland. What it's like to also face the threat of being displaced because of the rising seas of climate change. Yeah. Great. Um, well, on, uh, I would love for us to, to keep talking for hours and hours. I feel like we're just scratching the surface of your wonderful work, but um, we are getting to be about out of time. So I think we'll we'll move to end on a roll. Um, so we have two guests, so we're going to do two questions. Um, I'll leave it up to you if you both want to answer both questions or if one person wants to answer one and the other wants to answer the other one. So um, who would like to go first? I could go first. <laughs> Okay. All right. Yeah. So Rena, uh, your question. And then again, Jeff, if you have a good answer for it, feel free to chime in afterwards, but otherwise you can, you can have your own question as well. So the question is number nine. Uh, so if you could only recommend one thing to someone starting out in the environmental humanities, what would that be? So that could be like, you know, a, a certain book you would like them to read or a piece of advice or, um, sky's the limit. Oh, sky's the limit, eh? Um, <laughs> okay, so I okay two maybe. Can I recommend two? Sure, of course. Yeah, of course. Or three, or three. <laughs> no, uh, I'm always gonna start with um, not just because he's my supervisor, but Greg Gerard's eco criticism volume um, has helped so many, especially um, in countries where resources are not as easily um, procured as they are here in North America. Um, it's just everywhere in the Philippines. It's the first book I, I had and it really gave me, like, I couldn't understand anything back then, uh, 10 years ago, but it was helpful in putting me in the right path. Um, but Greg did recommend Timothy Clark's book. So he says that Timothy Clark's book is actually great. So that's the Cambridge Introduction to Literature and the Environment. Um, and then for my personal recommendation for anybody starting out, I always would like them to look at Elizabeth DeGlaucry's um, Routes and Roots. I, I just love that book. Mm. And I feel that it gives more context to um, where the, the field is heading now. So those are my recommendations. Nice. Jeff, any you want to add? Yes, I'd love to add to that. I agree. I, I, I run out and read those books that Rena just mentioned. I also yes. want to add to that um, the title of a book that I referred to earlier, by Amitav Ghosh, The Nutmeg's Curse, Parables for a Planet in Crisis. Mm. Beautifully written. Um, you know, it's both prose as well as history. Uh, but I think that book says it all. It's for me, it's the very basis, right, for what we want to articulate in our book, Empire and Environment. So, um, so go out and read that right now, right? 
to, yes. <laughs> to fully grasp that historical context of, of colonialism and imperialism, particularly the way he connects, uh, uh, you know, colonialism and imperialism and environmental devastation in Southeast Asia to the transatlantic mm-hmm. slave trade. Um, one novel that I'm reading right now, and I'm only at the beginning, but I'm absolutely floored by it. And I consider it, you know, I'll have to finish reading it, um, but I'm sure uh, it will end as a masterpiece is um, How Beautiful We Were. And I'm hoping I'm pronouncing her name correctly, um, Mbolo Mbui. Um, and it's reminding me so much of Ken Sarawiwa's work, right? But mm. about how this this village in Africa and, and Cameroon, um, Mbolo Mbui, um, I believe is, is Cameroonian, um, that it's about how this small village is, is taking on after being devastated by a U.S.-based uh, fossil fuel company hmm. that is polluting their environment and is leading to the, the illness, right, of their children. It's a work of fiction, but it is very much based on uh, historical f- fact, right, the, the the work that Kensaro Wiwa devoted his life to. Um, so I haven't finished reading it yet, but I, but, uh, but what I've read of it so far, it's, it's just gorgeous and I highly recommend it. Okay. Awesome. All right. So question number two, so this will be yours to take the lead on Jeff and then Rena, if you've got something to add, feel free. All right. So, so we, we kind of prepped you for this one before the show. So what has you most, it's number seven. Uh, what has you most excited or hopeful right now? Um, so this could be like, you know, someone's particular, uh, uh, new scholar. That's just like really, really cool. And that you're, you're really excited with their work, or it could just be, you know, something that has happened to you and, or you've seen or witnessed in the world in general. Okay. Well, I have. I would have a lot to say about scholars, right? Um, but I think uh, I wanted. I want to talk about something personal, right? Um, I am currently located uh, for the summer in the home that my partner and I share in Southern Vermont. Um, in the you know, and kind of like um, in the beginning, the entrance to the Green Mountains. I'm close to. I'm located in the village called Jamaica, Vermont. Uh, for those of you who ski, it's near Mount Stratton, uh, which is a, a large ski resort in southern Vermont. But we have um, probably over an acre of of gardens that we have created. We've been at this home since 2011, um, and over over you know the last 11 years, I have uh, been expanding right areas that were just kind of like a bare lawn and turned them into a pollinator garden. Mm. Um, so three years ago, I began growing um, native plants, uh, milkweed, butterflyweed in particular, um, because I was very concerned about something that we've all been hearing about, uh, the precipitous crash in pollinator populations, mm-hmm. particularly of you know bees, but also butterflies, especially the native monarch butterfly. Yesterday, uh, after growing milkweed for, for three years, butterflyweed for three years, I noticed the first monarch butterflies to appear in the garden. I was, I was Amazing. so happy about it, right, <laughs> that I did, you know, I did a little jig in the garden. <laughs> you know, all that work and, um, in growing you know, native flora, like you know, milkweed and butterflyweed, has led to what I hope uh, 
will be this returning population of monarch butterflies. And I, I didn't see just one, but I saw like five of them, you know, flittering around and, and uh, sipping on the nectar, right, and the milkweed. So I was really happy about that. That gave me hope. Awesome. That gave me, that gave me a lot of hope. Nice. That's wonderful. Rena? Uh, yeah, I'm going to chime in here. And I've always had just one answer to this question. Um, it's constantly come up in my work. And um, kind of, you know, using Jeff's um, garden. And, and, and Jeff's garden has always been lovely. He sent me photos of it <laughs> over the years. <laughs> so I trust that it will attract the best butterflies and uh, the, the, the population of bees. So I'm very confident in that. Kind of using that as a metaphor, um, um, I see the hope, and I constantly search for hope in in students and in the young people of today and seeing their engagement and the kind of world they're living in, the kind of world that they're, they're going to be existing in. I have a teenage daughter and just thinking about what she's confronting now and how she's coming into her own terms and her choice of using they, them pronouns. Um, that makes me feel hopeful for their generation. And I'm just hoping that they maintain this kind of stamina for all the issues that they're fighting for and for all the issues that they're growing into that they keep on fighting. And, and I, and I hate to say like, oh, you know, good for their generation, right? Like, and also that puts an onus on, on us, like, what are we doing to support them so that they're able to keep moving forward in this uncertain reality that unfortunately we've left them with, right? There's only so much we can do as environmentalists, scholars, and academics and hope. And I think like, if we don't hold on to those little pieces of hope, like, you know, like, just garden or the for me my daughter and young people then i think that's when we seriously have to think about what what will happen right or what's coming next or maybe there's nothing coming next so um i see that in them and um i i always enjoy engaging with students and listening to their ideas and that brings me hope and they're so open and as jeff said hungry for um, information for art for expressions and and they really are are open to sinking their their teeth in so to speak in in issues and um, this is their reality and they're embracing it and I think that's enough hope for the work that we do so yeah awesome thank you that was so good both of you made me feel very happy and hopeful just <laughs> hearing about your your answers. Thank you for sharing those yeah. with us. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you both so much for today. We'd love if you could tell our listeners where they can find you for, you know, additional access to your work, if you have social media, or if you want to say where your other publications are accessible. Um, I think Jeff, um, where can they find um, the, the book empire and environment it's definitely available i've seen it everywhere so it's forthcoming it's coming out october 24 2022 okay. and it's it's coming out open access so that oh, means it will so be available amazing. for free yes um, Yay. and it's being funded we were 
thrilled that we applied for funding through this program called Knowledge Unlatched, uh, which I understand is a, it's a consortium, an international one of librarians and li- libraries, um, mostly I think at universities uh, throughout the world, where mm-hmm. they um, each press nominates, I think, um, the books that they want to be funded for open access. Um, and the, the librarians rank or they rate, you know, the books that they want to receive funding. And our book got, it was nominated and then it won. So we were really awesome. thrilled about this. So, so uh, through the program Knowledge Unlatched, which we're very thankful for, and also Open Access, our book will be available for free uh, digitally, right? So it will be available f- for free to download in October of this year. Awesome. So yeah. that's one way you can have access, right, yeah. to, our, yeah. to our work for free. <laughs> yeah, and it should be available. And I saw the sign already, the University of Michigan Press um, website. I saw the sign for open access already. So once um, the book is um, launched into the world, I'm pretty sure the open access um publication or uh, the pdf of it will also be available awesome yeah we'll, we'll make sure that gets into our show notes so people Thank can just r- click on that mm-hmm. um awesome. any social media twitter website anything like that um i do have twitter so that's my public account it's at rena garcia chua and um i i have a website and it's it's linked to my Twitter, but um, that's my next project. I need to update it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my dissertation has taken over the rest of my life, and I'm just recovering. So that's my next project. I will update that website. But, yeah, it's all in my Twitter account. Awesome. I'm not as digitally or social media <laughs> proficient as no Rita. I don't yeah. have my own website. Um, it's one of the things I need to, I need to work on. Um, but, uh, you know, um, I am on, um, what is it called? Academia.edu. So mm-hmm. I have some, some of my articles that I published um, in previous years available to download for free. Um, I'm always, you know, I'm always contactable <laughs> through email, <laughs> through my institutional email at Stony Brook. So I'm happy, you know, to receive any questions or, um, yeah, uh, to engage in any conversations uh, through email. Um, but I'm not on Twitter. <laughs> um, and I used to be on Facebook, but I'm not anymore. Um, but yeah, but yes, that's me. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you again, both, uh, for joining us today. It's been a, a really, really great conversation. Um, yeah, we'll make sure that there's, there's links to all that stuff in there. Uh, and thank you all for listening. So if you've got an idea for an episode, either you would like to share your work or there's someone you'd like for us to reach out to, to have onto the show, um, please feel free to reach out to us. Uh, you can get to us through our Twitter, which is at Asley underscore ecocast. You can email us uh, asley.ecocast at gmail.com. And then there's also a link tree on our Twitter page. If you click on that, um, it takes you to our submission form for submitting uh, proposals as well. So please, please do that. If you enjoy listening to Ecocast, you can help us reach a larger audience by liking, sharing, tweeting about today's show, and contacting us at any time, as Brandon said, if you have ideas. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.